0: You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. So we've been walking through the Gospel of John, one of the best friends of Jesus, one of the 12 apostles, one of the eyewitnesses of Jesus' life and ministry and death and even resurrection, and he gives us an eyewitness account of all that Jesus taught and said. And so we're invited into this eyewitness account of one of the apostles so that we might be introduced to who Jesus is. And we come towards the very end, the very last week, and even the last days of Jesus' life on the earth, to where up to this point he has ministered and demonstrated some amazing and powerful things through his teaching and miraculous works. And now as he sees the fate that is before him, as he turns his heart towards the cross, not... Not begrudgingly, not, not, not reluctantly, but we find out later that for the joy set before him, he sets his sight on the mission that God has set out for Jesus to win back God's people. And he sets his sight for the cross. And the last week of Jesus, we see him preparing for this. The last few weeks we've seen Jesus has given what we would call a farewell discourse. The last words of Jesus that he wraps up in chapter 7, or excuse me, 17 with a prayer. So we're going to read the entirety of chapter 17, this prayer, this is this the, the collection of the last words of Jesus to his disciples while he was on the earth. Last week, we spent the majority of our energy on verse 1 through 19, and we'll overlap and spend the most of our energy today beginning in verse 6. I'll read the entirety of the chapter, but spending most of our time emphasizing verse 6 to the end of the chapter. Let's begin to open this up and pray that God would begin to open our own hearts as we read it. Verse 1. the truth your word is truth as you sent me into the world so i have sent them into the world and for their sake i consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth i do not ask for these only but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one just as you father are in me and i in you that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. In this unique passage in the entirety of the Bible, we get to eavesdrop on Jesus. We get to eavesdrop on Jesus speaking to His heavenly Father. We get to listen in. And John, one of the eyewitnesses and best friends of Jesus, gets a chance to invite us into listening in to his prayer. Now, I have to begin with a word of terror, let's say. You see, you know what a person believes and who they really are when you listen in on their conversations. But this is a terrifying thing. You know what a person believes when you listen in on their prayers. You know what they really believe about God. You know they really, how they see who God is, and what they believe about who God is and who they are. Now I know I say it's terrifying, because some of you right now, I know someone's going to ask you to pray out loud in front of other people this week, and what I just said made it ten times more terrifying, didn't it? They're going oh, to know. But I want you to see Jesus models something for us. He goes first for us. He lets us in on how we ought to rightly see the Father and how we ought to rightly engage with our Heavenly Father. How we ought to know God and come to God. So I want to encourage you, maybe a word of challenge and terror and hopefully love at the same time that that we begin to know what Jesus really believes about who the Father is. And He gives us an insight, a window into the character of God that otherwise we would not have seen. So as we walk through this, we see something amazing. Jesus intercedes for us in order to show and share with us the glory of God through separateness from the world. Now we dug through this last week. There are certain ways in which we are separate from the world, but but mostly the language that's repeated over and over and over again in this particular prayer is first the language of glory. Glory. Right, the language of glorify me, I had this glory, it's a glory that I used to have, now I've given it to them. And that word glory and glorify is over and over and over again. So ultimately, the, the goal of his prayer is for the glory of God through the Son and the invitation for his people to experience and share in and see all of that glory. That's the goal. As we saw last week, Jesus models in praying for himself and for his own glory, and we are to do the same. That ultimately the prayers we are to seek out, to to look to to the Father, to answer, we saw in the last several chapters, Jesus repeated over and over and over again, ask what you wish, ask what you wish, but ask it in my name. And so we come to the Father and say, God, do something that will glorify you, that will make much of you. But you see that word glory isn't a word we use regularly. There's a distinct kind of glory here that Jesus has that he's he's inviting us into. It's a distinctness from the world. And the Gospels are even distinct from the rest of the Bible in this, right? Genesis ends with Joseph's death. Deuteronomy ends with the death of Moses. The book of Joshua ends with the death of Joshua. And at this point, as Jesus bids farewell, we're meant to be preparing for the similar kind of ending. The exact same thing. But the Gospels don't end there. They end with resurrection. Do you see the the glory that Jesus receives is not like any other glory. It is distinct from any other fame, any other fortune, any other honor, any other recognition. And that changes everything. And the word that the Bible uses over and over and over again to describe the character of God and even the character and nature nature of Jesus and His mission, you hear it over and over again in this one? Holy. 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 No other word is used more than the word holy to describe God in the entirety of the Bible. And now that's a word that simply means set apart. It's something different. It's nothing like anything else. It's distinct from. And so the language of that distinction is all throughout this passage. Did you catch that? It's it's found in the language of the world's here, but they're here. The world's here, I'm here. Did you, you, you hear that separation? the distinction, here's the world, here's, here's me and my people, and they're nothing like the world. And in the way that they are distinct from the world, the world can actually see the distinctiveness of the character and nature of the Father. But the other way that you see it, you actually heard the words holy. Jesus describes the Father, holy Father, which is an encouragement to us who maybe had, a, had, a, had a, an earthly father, maybe we have an earthly father that modeled the God the Father very poorly. And Jesus says, I've got an encouragement for you. God is a Father, but He's not like any Father you've ever seen. This Father is holy. This Father is distinct from any other Father you've ever heard about. And he calls Him a holy Father. But then He uses the language of sanctification and consecration. Now, now you can't see this in the English, but we saw last week, this is a derivative, and it's another form of the word holiness. So that the growth of a Christian, once they've seen and savored and marveled at the glory of jesus they become more and more holy in that process we describe as sanctification but you have to get out of your head for just a moment the the connotations of holiness with respect to only moral good so normally if i said you know that person's holy or let's say they're holier than thou you think of like Moral action. You think of moral qualities. That person is a good person or does good things. That that can be helpful, but mostly the word holy just means different. It means set apart. Did you see that? Jesus says, look, I'm not the world. I'm not like the world. In fact, I'm on my way out of the world. So connect the dots in Jesus' prayer. For the glory of God to be visible And the distinction of His character, His Son, and His people from the rest of the world. That distinction, that separateness, that holiness is a mark of God. And as we grow in godliness to look more and more like Him as Christians, it's a growing mark in our own lives. Look less and less like the world. Because you see, that's the other word that's used over and over and over again in this passage. Did you, did you catch it? The word world. just over and over. I'm, I'm not praying for the world. I'm praying for them. I'm not the world. I'm over here. And the same way that I'm not the world, they're not of the world. So now, therefore, I'm sending them into the world. I'm not praying that they would be taken out of the world, but I'm, I'm praying that, that they would be kept from the evil one. Now I'm sending them out as God has sent me. That language of the world over and over and over again. Now, the New Testament uses the word world at least seven different ways, but but there's at least two that are important for us. One is to talk about the goodness of God's creation. And the other way to use the word world is to talk about the fallenness and the separateness of God's creation from the Creator. Now, it's important to, to note which is being used or which is being implied, because Lots of trouble could happen after that, right? Because we saw in John chapter 3, God so loved the world. Well, what's he talking about there? Does God love sin? Does God, does God unite himself with, with sin? Does God, does God approve of or condone or glorify or magnify or draw attention to evil, broken, fallen things? No, they're separate from him. He can't even... Look at them without them being obliterated, but instead he's saying, that look, there's a love I have for my people, for my creation, the way I made things to be. But the, the, the way that the world is used here is to talk about a fallen, broken world. The Old Testament and the New Testament sometimes use this language of as the present evil age. The age that was versus the age to come. And so there's a distinctiveness between God, the Son, and His people, and the world. It's separate, separate from what's fallen and broken and looking less and less like God the Father. Now, notice in that word glory, I've got to redefine it. We talked about this for the last several chapters. That word glory most literally just means weight, it means weight. And so for all you physics nerds, you, you, you're excited about this, right? It just means mass. Or as I, as I talked about, uh, I, I borrowed a, a completely made-up word, massivity. Like the, the massiveness, the, a great mass has qualities to it. And so glory is simply a, a word that literally means weight, mass. Now you know all the properties of things that are massive. Things that are massive have a gravitational pull. And so Jesus intercedes to show us and to share with us the glory, the weight and greatness and the massivity of God and the glory and the mass of God is on display how? In our separateness from the world and our union with Christ and our union with His purpose and mission. You know this. Listen, apart from the glory of the earth, literally the mass, right? Apart from the glory of the earth, what happens? We float off into space. Apart from the glory of Jesus, we float off into the world. Apart from the mass and glory of the earth, we we are literally not grounded, but we begin to float. We have nothing to stand on, nothing to hold us firm. And some of you know exactly what that feels like. You ever find yourself saying it's just like one after the other? just one hit after the other? Boy, the hits just keep on coming. Just Things just keep on having my plan. I'm, I'm not even on plan B anymore. I'm on plan D or somewhere way down the line. You know what this feels like? Like I can't get my feet under me. There's always something that knocks me off balance. You know that feeling? Apart from the glory of the earth, we float off into space. But apart, of the, apart from the glory of Christ, we float off into the world. His glory is what holds us. His mass, His greatness is what draws us to Him. It's what allows us to cling to Him, but also, did you hear the language? It's what keeps us. It's what keeps us from floating off. And that glory makes us united to Him, and we saw here, united to one another. Not only are we not floating away from Him, but we're not floating away from one another. It's what unites us him to us and unites us to one another it also unites us in the mission to the world some of you if you're in this room and maybe you wouldn't call yourself a christian i'm so glad you're here i hope that you can kind of eavesdrop on on a conversation about what it means to really be united with christ and therefore distinct from and separate from the world And in light of this glory, the weight and the mass of God that draws us to Himself in Christ and away from the world, I want to propose to you a question: Is it possible? If you're in this room and you're not a believer, or maybe you're in this room and you don't even maybe I don't maybe I am a believer, or maybe you don't even know if you're a Christian. Is it possible that your very being in this room is a result of the gravitational pull of Jesus? Is it possible? Is it possible that there's actually a greater force, a mass, an existential, eternal, incomprehensible mass that is the glory of God drawing us here? And it's even drawn you. Maybe it drew someone to invite you. Or maybe there's circumstances even beyond that. Maybe it drew you to Google something that got you to this place this morning. But here's what I want to pose. It's on you to answer. Is it possible that you are caught in the gravitational pull of Jesus? Let's begin to walk through this text. The mystery of prayers we saw last week is on display. Now God has appointed the hour and the hour has now arrived. But notice it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't strike Jesus as an excuse to just go like whatever. The faith is the fate has begun. I, I can't stop. What, what does it cause him to do? It, he doesn't resign to, them, to the things that are going on or to some sort of fatalistic view or defeatist view of the world. What does he do? He begins to pray. And I know for you, some of you, you encounter the first mystery here, right? He knows what's going to happen and yet his response is to pray. God has ordained not only the end but also the means. And friend, there's a mystery he's invited us into. The means he has ordained for his ends is prayer. In this prayer, we find this amazing contrast between the people of God, the people of Jesus, and the people of the world. The Christian's task isn't then to be necessarily withdrawn from the world. certainly not to be confused with the world, to have some blurry line between their identity in Christ and then their identity with the world. That's why it's repeated over and over and over and over again, as if to say like, so I think what you're trying to say, Jesus, is that we're not the world. Did I, get that? Did I, hear, did I hear you right, Jesus? In the, in the 11 times that you mentioned the world, I get the impression that you are not of the world and I am not. Yes, that's exactly what's going on. And yet, we are to remain in the world. We have a witness to the truth of God's care for us in Jesus. In the last chapters, we see we have the comfort of His Spirit with us. And even though the world can muster lots of malice and anger, we find ultimately we're what? Protected by the Father. We're kept by the Father. And all of this as an answer to the prayer of Jesus. So let's begin to look at these distinctiveness, the, the distinctiveness we have. Last week we saw there's a distinctiveness in the way that we as Christians have an identity because of we see God as Father, We have a distinct role now because Jesus, hour has come. His death is sufficient to accomplish something. We have a distinct view of life. We have life now not in, remember, we don't have life in view of the 80s. We have life in view of eternity. We don't have life like your puppy. We have life like a human who can see with moral clarity the world. And we have his presence. We're distinct from the world In many different ways. And here's another way we begin to see from the last half of this chapter. We're separate from the world through being given by God and kept by Christ. Did you hear over and over and over again that language? From the very beginning. God is given. This word give is over and over and over again. What God gives to Jesus and then what Jesus gives to God and what God gives to Jesus back and forth. And this is eternal life that they know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. There's this picture that God has given us eternal life in Christ. He now has authority. But Look at verse 2. Given them authority over all flesh to give eternal life to who? Who gets eternal life? Who gets a life in light of eternity? Who gets a new transformative view of the world? All whom you have given Him. Namely, all that God has given to Jesus, He keeps and holds. We're distinct from the world because we believe we have an identity that God has given us despite ourselves. Not based on any merit of our own, not based on anything we've accomplished. This is weird. This word give or gave shows up 17 times in this chapter alone. That's almost every single verse. And we are distinct from the world because we believe we have an identity given to us by God. And so, this is amazing, right? What, what gives us a, a unity with Christ? What unites us with Christ? We believe God alone does that. He hands us over. The way we talked about this in the previous chapters, I know this will blow your mind, but it, this ought to kind of, if, if this doesn't give you joy and comfort, it ought to kind of make you angry. So, just brace yourself. Because you might be here and asking, what do I need to do to become a Christian? Because after all, any other religion in the world, you can ask that question, right? What do I do to become a Buddhist? Well, you do these things. You pray this way, do these things, right? What do I do to become a Muslim? Well, they're the five pillars. Do these five things. What do I do to become these things? What do I do to become a Hindu? I, 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 I do these things. And this is bizarre. Because if you're in this room and you're like, what do I do to become a Christian? This is really going to distinguish you from the rest of the world, you recognize that there's nothing that you can do to become a Christian. The most bizarre, otherworldly characteristic of a Christian is that they know they have no ability to make themselves a Christian. And that's why the language of John is so powerful, right? We're born again. Born again? How How much help did you give your mom the first time you were born? Right? Are you going to be the person on a Mother's Day calls her up and says, you're welcome? No! You were helpless. You were given life in a way that was beyond anything you could have ever earn or even ever, like, anything you could ever take credit for. So on Mother's Day, you do the good and right thing and you say, thanks, Mom. And so the same thing is true here. When we're born again, we're given new life. The language in this prayer is that God has handed us over to Jesus to keep and to protect. Now notice, like, For those of you whose eyes have been opened to the glory of Jesus and His grace towards you that you could never deserve, that fills you with great joy, doesn't it? You're like, for a minute there I thought this was up to me and I thought I screwed it up again this week, right? And you hear that and you're like, oh, that's so good. But for the rest of you who ultimately love yourself but might be looking for Jesus to baptize your own self-sufficiency and your own achievement and identity and your own performance, this ought to hurt you. And I know you want me to stand here and say, go be a good Christian. Go be, go do, go achieve, go accomplish, go stop sinning, go do all those things. And yet we know that's slavery, don't we? If you think I'm wrong, just do me a favor, stop sinning this week. Stop. No more sin. You realize you're captive to it. And apart from supernatural grace, Apart from some supernatural kindness from God, we are without hope. Completely without hope. But thanks be to God, what does it say happens? God looks at those people, not based on their own merit, but what does He do? He takes them and entrusts them to His Son. He says, go, bear the curse for this one. He gives them out of the world. The Father plucks us out and gives us to Jesus. This ought to provoke you. Because if you don't have a really robust view of God the Father pulling you out of your own sin, plucking you out of your, own, of, of your own destiny, plucking you out of your own desire for destruction, then you'll side with the world when the time of pressure comes. How do I know this? Well, first of all, Jesus says it here, but I also know it from experience. And I also know what this feels like. Don't you feel this tension? Can't I be cool and be a Christian? Can't I be powerful and be self-sacrificing? Can't I be popular and be a follower of Jesus? Can't I be both attached to all the people in the world and to Christ? You feel it? You feel it? Please, can't I have these two things? You see, holiness isn't always just a visible set of results. In fact, that's legalism. But instead, for us, we believe that the separateness separateness that we now experience in in the world is a result of God pulling us out of our own mess. Holiness begins with an internal disposition, an awareness that we are not like anything else. We are those who have been given by God to to Christ and the ones that are kept by Christ. That's our hope. That's what makes us Christian. And I know, maybe some of you are like, well, that's an arrogant thing to say. I disagree. In fact, it's the most humble thing to say. To say that I am only a Christian, I'm only a Christian because God was merciful enough to send His Son to save me, is to say something like, I'm not good enough to do this on my own. I don't have the merit. I don't have the ability. If if God doesn't work in me and do something for me, I could never do it on my own. And that's why most people who don't see this, who haven't been radically uprooted by this, find themselves calling themselves Christians, but lost in one of two awful places. Despair, because they know they can't measure up. Or the most popular one in America, Western Christianity, they just fake it become really good at lying, become really good at like acting like a Christian, believing that acting somehow makes them a Christian. And they miss the good news. Jesus has acted on our behalf. Jesus has done all that was necessary. If we're just looking for a visible set of results, that's just a form of legalism. That is, a, a desire to earn by our own ability, what God alone can give. By work or by achievement, you somehow gain God's favor. Instead, we see holiness is a result of God's work towards us, pulling us out of our own sin. While we were dead in our trespasses, He resurrects us and hands us off to Jesus so that now we have a new life marked by Jesus. We have this deep and profound Awareness that we are not once what we once were. And the result? A profound awareness of our own alienation with the world. There's something in us that knows we just don't belong here. And when we see things broken and busted, when we hear words like cancer, something in us goes like, that's not right. When we drive past a, a hospital specifically constructed for children, something in us goes, that's not, that's not right. That's not the way this is supposed to be. This can't be the way things were meant to be. And so there's inside of us a deep sense of alienation. We don't belong here. Now notice that doesn't mean that we're different for the sake of being different. I have to speak this because that's kind of the new fad for the last about 30 years, I would say. Like to be rebellious is the new in vogue thing. You ever notice this? And that's why people, when they rebel, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going to burst your bubble. Whenever you rebel and think you're being an individual, you always, you always express individualism like a bunch of other people. You ever notice that? You're like, I'm going to be an individual. I'm going to go to that store and buy all this stuff that everyone else who wanted to be an individual bought their stuff from, Right? Right, my favorite was like the. I had some really close friends and kind of got felt the pull of this. Like, I remember when I was uh, when I was what was cool when I was in middle school was the goth movement, right? Like dressing up in black trench coats and black and girls and dudes wearing black makeup again. And they were like, "I don't care what anybody thinks," and it was like, except for the other people who dress like me. <laughs> Like, like, I'm going to rebel against the way we do things. Oh, but by the way, I'm just going to go do it in this group of other people who dress wearing black, right? And maybe it's stomped on your dreams. But there's something in you that desires to be a snowflake, that desires to be special, that desires something that's distinct. I'm unique. Now notice, underneath that, we find out what it is. It's actually God, before the foundation of the world, marking you. You're an image bearer. It's just that we try to find worldly ways to apprehend a kind of individuality that God freely gives us in Christ. And so the best we can muster is to be an individual just like everybody else. So don't miss, this is is a radical distinction from the world. When you start to wrap your mind around this separateness that God grants us in Christ, it does something amazing. Now now the separateness give us a sense, gives us a sense of identity. Now the other word that's over and over, used over and over again is the word word, but it's also used synonymous with truth. Did you catch at the very end? Your word is truth, namely what God reveals to us about himself, what God speaks, what God says is what's true. It's what gives us identity and therefore it gives us unity. The separateness that we experience in the world is a radical understanding of an unchangeable irreducible truth and that truth Jesus says is himself his person his work his accomplishment is what he said earlier the way the truth and the life that truth is not a mystery that we have to somehow like find or deduce that truth is a person what's true about the world and Jesus says i am what's really true what's really true that God would look at you and me and send his only son to take our place? That's what's true. That's what's real. That's the irreducible truth that animates everything. And that's what unites us. You see, the world has created over and over and over again, every few generations, a way to kind of reject objective, irreducible truth. Doesn't it? I mean, right now, like the, the newest way to reject it is kind of a, a pervasive relativism. It's expressed in what we would say is like a movement of tolerance. And so we would come along and say, you can't be both Christian and the world. And a, and a relativistic view of the world would come along and say, you can't tell me what I can and can't be. You can't, you can't like, you can't press your view of the world onto me which is ironic it's self-defeating it sounds like you're pressing your view of the world on me when you say that i could be wrong and so like the thing that flows out of this the truth that unites us is it animates us and it propels us because the next thing we're separate in as a result of that is that now we are separate from the world in our purpose and our mission a couple things going on here the first one is to realize that God has called you to be something and to do something and to engage in something that will outlive you, that is greater and more amazing than yourself. And the most, the most eternally valuable gift we find here is that you get to realize you are now sent like Christ. You have a purpose. Look, I know so many of you, you you've come into this room and you're beginning to wonder, is there any point to this? Why am I here? Why have all these things happened? And maybe some of you, you're like, you've come in and you, you just want to be validated. And so you're, you're, you're trying to stack up degrees, accomplishments, relationships, friendships. You're trying to, to win it. You're trying to like climb a ladder. You're trying to earn your way to, this, to, to get out of that feeling that only you really know is true. That when you look in the mirror, there are deep doubts about whether you really have a purpose or meaning in life. And sometimes you can kind of deaden that fear, can't you? On a good day when you're winning, when you feel like you're really conquering in relationships and people, you can distract yourself, but you know that fear, that fear inside of each and every one of you, you're nobody. Did you hear the good news? In the same way that Jesus was not a nobody, but God has sent him for a purpose, now, just as Jesus, so too you and I. We're on a mission. We have a purpose. This is not for nothing. It's not an accident. I know it seems like it. But that's the word and the voice of the enemy to tell you that you're worthless and meaningless. And friend, it's, you're not, there's a meaning, there's a purpose. You're here for a purpose. Think about it this way some of you in this room you were born here and some of you you moved here and I, I what if i told you you weren't actually born here but that you were sent here what if i told you you didn't move to sioux falls you were sent to sioux falls what if i told you you didn't drive here you were sent here you get it that might mess you up right that might make you distinct from everyone else who was driving somewhere this morning right I'm on a mission, I've got a place to be. God sent me to this place. You see, when you have those kinds of views, you you realize that even though you're distinct from the world, you're sent to it. You have a purpose. Look, the the, the purpose, this this blew my mind. I had missed this. But let's read 17, 18, and 19 together. So sanctify them in the truth, right? The truth this objective, timeless truth in Jesus, Right? sanctify them. Remember, that's a version of the word holy. So make set apart, right? The truth of, truth of Jesus is going to make us look less and less like the world and look more and more like Jesus. So sanctify them. He's saying, make them holy. It's your word and your truth that will do this. But then he says in verse 19, the same kind of thing, for, this, for their sake, I consecrate myself. That is, I set myself apart so that they might be sanctified or set, set apart in truth. And notice what was sandwiched in verse 17 and 19, which are about our holiness and our growing and our distinctiveness. Did you catch it? Our purpose. Verse 18, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Did you catch that? God's purpose to make us holy and more like him is inextricable to our mission to accomplish what he has accomplished. Do not separate the two. The mission that God has called us on is to be distinct from the world. And the more distinct we are from the world, we know why we're here. Look, if, if you got up right now and you went next door in the Kids Connection, right, especially like the two to three year olds, if you went in that room, you would, I hope, begin to realize how different you are than them. Right? You'd be like, I seem to be operating from a different set of values. Right? I seem... I seem to understand things a little differently, right? And notice, the more and more you realized how different you were from the two- to three-year-olds, the more you would realize how important it is for you to be there. The more you would understand how unlike the two- and three-year-olds you are, the more you know your purpose for the two- and three-year-olds. You get it? Whereas if you came into the room of two- and three-year-olds, you were like, I'm just going to blend in. I'm going to adopt their values. I'm like... It'd be weird. It would be weird. It'd be problematic. But the more unlike those children you realize that you are, the more you realize your purpose for children, don't you? Like these kids, I mean, it, it, simple things. That kid keeps rubbing clothes, all, like food all over his clothing. And some of you are like, me too, That's, but maybe it's a bad example. But, like, but you would say, I know how to help him now. I know how to help him. I know how I can serve him. I know what that child needs. You get it? This child's hitting people. I I now know how to help them. The more distinct you are from them, the the more you know your purpose. Did you catch that here? The more set apart from the world that you are, the more you realize how much the world needs you. The more unlike the world that you are, the more you realize what God is doing with you. Could it be that your feelings of aimlessness and purposelessness are in the fact that you want to be loved and accepted by the world more than you experience the acceptance of Christ? You can't go to the room full of two- and three-year-olds and change them from the inside. You can't become one of them and then lead them out. You're no good to us. But in a room like that, the more separate you are, better you are the greater purpose the higher calling you begin to experience did you catch that here he says sanctify them in the truth and the more that the truth of God makes you realize how uncomfortable and unwelcome you are in the world the more you're able to actually be sent towards the world I know my purpose now the more I experience the gift of life and joy and hope in Christ the more I realize how absent it is in my family in my workplace and in the world the more security, the more affirmation I receive from the Father, the truth of His Word for me, the more I realize how insecure, the more I realize what a, what a starvation that the world is living in. The more satisfied I am in Christ, the more I realize how hungry and thirsty the world is. Do you get it? Do you get it? And our mission in the world is predicated on our separateness from it. For Christians in the room, maybe you you struggle with sharing the gospel with people. I I don't know if you caught this. Your fear of sharing the gospel with people is because you love them more than you love Jesus. The glory, the weight, the gravity of Jesus is smaller than the gravity and the weight of the approval of people. And the effectiveness of and speaking the gospel and drawing people towards Jesus is actually related to, directly sandwiched in, our ability to put to death our own sin. Is it, I'm, your inability to have an impact in the world may be directly related to your unwillingness to hate and kill your own sin. I wanna, be, I wanna make a big difference, I wanna make an impact, I got an idea. Put to death your lust. Put to death sin of lust. Put to death your laziness, your gluttony. Put to death your idolatry of loving, comfort, and approval. Put those things to death, and then you will begin to experience an amazing thing. Look, this is what we know. If you live for yourself and for your own pleasure and your own comforts, you'll shrivel. You'll shrivel and die. This is so weird. If you live just to be content and whole and happy, you will never be whole or happy. The worst way to get contentment and wholeness is to strive for it. The only way to receive wholeness is to commit yourself to a higher cause. You want to experience contentment? Stop chasing contentment. Start chasing Jesus. And realize the byproduct of the most glorious, most massive thing on the earth is your feet finally stand firm. Jesus is saying that the most important thing that he is doing is the most important thing that he's called us to do. To make us holy, to stand apart from the world and then begin to go to, move towards the world with its needs. And he says even there, in fact, you can't even do this unless I make you holy. If I don't make you holy, this won't work making us holy, set apart, distinct from the world, is the essence of what Jesus was sent to do. The purpose of this dedication is that his followers would dedicate themselves to the same kingdom, same mission in the world. Now this means, for us, one of the most dangerous things that a Christian can do is to let the world begin to think that they are actually Christians. That we're just the same. And it means that the most helpful thing that we can do is to help the world see that they're not Christians. Now, I know, that's a weird thing. Um, I, I come and you're like, I thought you were just going to tell me everything was okay. And I'm like, well, in Jesus, everything is okay. But apart from Jesus, no, you're not. And here's the thing, the worst thing that I could tell you, if you came into this room looking for me to affirm you or looking to, like, to, to pat your back on your achievements, on your holiness, your ability to dress up and act a certain way today, the worst things I could do for you is to go, yeah, you're fine, you're good. Keep doing what you're doing. And the best thing I could do is say, you missed it. You missed it. You've missed it. It's only God's grace that changes us. It's only his mercy that changes us. You can't win this, and one of the worst ways to get this is to try to win it, right? We hold these truths to be self-evident, right? We have the right for what? Pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness. Just recognize that's the most anti-gospel thing on earth. It's only when a person lays down his life what happens, that he takes it up. If you try to get your life, you lose it. But if you let go of it, what does Jesus say? You'll find it. What about liberty? What did he say? They'll know what? The truth. And the truth is what will set them free. What about the pursuit of happiness, of joy? What does he say? Look, I will be the source of life, and it will be life to the full, to the maximum. Don't miss that. This will make us very distinct, won't it? Won't it? We're also separate from the world in this. We're a community united with Christ. I'll run through a couple of these last ones because they kind of speak for themselves. Notice, in the other of the synoptic Gospels, Jesus would not allow us to pray, my Father who art in heaven, right? We're only allowed to pray our Father. And notice what we get here. Our union with Christ works right alongside our union with one another for the church. And so when he begins to pray for those who might believe in the mission that he's called us to to experience in the world, in verse 20 on, there's, there's a union, a oneness that he prays for. Now here's what this means. You can't experience the goodness of God's grace in the privacy of your own home. You can't. You can't like sit here for a while, kind of take some bits and pieces, and then run home with them and experience God's grace in its fullness. You can't. Did you miss that? Like, don't, please don't overlook this. The goodness and fullness of God's grace can only experience be experienced when we look at God and say, our Father. When the group of people look at Christ and we are united in His goodness. You can't, like, and, and this will push against your Western individualism, won't it? And yet we, we cling to something powerful here. He prays to make them one. There's a community. There's a plurality. The them and the they. This isn't something you can experience in the privacy of your own car. Is God omniscient? Yes. Is God present in the privacy of your own home and your car? Yes. Should you experience the presence of God in all those things? Yes. But don't miss. He has reserved a special glory for what? Not you by yourself, but us as his people. His glory is too great for you to contain. It will only be displayed rightly and and righteously through every single tribe, tongue, and nation of the world. This is God's will for us. Can't do it alone. He doesn't fit into our individualized views. He only gives it to us as a church, as a group. And that means... Any bit of you that wants to like resist the temptation or like, well, I guess, resist the draw of God's people, if you, if you just want to keep people at a distance, you're going to miss out. And you're going to keep God at a distance. Now, that's interesting because for some of you, like, this, this, this will hit you specifically. If you were raised in a more rural setting, you're from a small town, right? Some of you moved to Sioux Falls for privacy. Right? So you, you small town, but you know what I'm talking about. Like, oh, it was a great school, it was a great area. But would they, what would you say? Something like, but everybody knows everybody's business. Right? And so for some of you, you, you were raised in a rural setting, and you're like, I'm in Sioux Falls just so I can be anonymous. Many of you know, like, uh, the, the great urbanizing or mobilizing movement that, that's, that's happening in the last 15 years of people flocking to metropolitan areas, I, I believe is this. It's like, I'm going to go where all the people are so that I don't have to interact with any of them right like you don't believe me go to a metropolitan a world city and just greet people on the on the street hi (laughs) hi like you get like you get it don't miss the deception of the human heart to like surround ourselves with people for the sake of being alone and private and what does he say you're missing out I got a greater glory And that glory isn't in you, and it isn't in you. It's in you together. That glory can't be contained by one person. I have to give it to a people. It's a holiness and a truth that you hold in common. It's a unity that we have. Now, how do we experience that unity? Well, all I know I can say is I can commend this to you. There's a lot of arguments over this, or like, is, are denominations of churches, or is, are divisions in churches, like, are they an attack to unity? Yes, I, I, I absolutely believe that. But I would also say that our unity isn't in unity for itself, our unity is in Christ. And so the truth and the things of Christ in his word for us, the writings of the Old and New Testament, these are our standard for truth. And so therefore, we're united in them. The best way I would say it is that the unity he talks about is that we're united in our distinctiveness from the world. So anytime that a person calls himself a Christian but kind of really wants to be friends with the world and uses the world's ethos, the world's thinking, the world's philosophy, the world's way of understanding meaning and truth and life, right? There's a sense in which we're like, ah, I, I don't think we're the same. And yet there's a, a, this unity that we now have. Think about it. In, in northern Yemen, there are more Christians in this room than there are in the millions of people who in northern Yemen. They're so rare. Very different. And yet here's the profound mystery, isn't it? I have more in common with someone in northern Yemen who has heard the gospel and believed, who has been raised in a completely different ethnicity, a completely different worldview, a completely different culture, with completely different customs and taboos and languages. I have more in common with that person in Christ than I do my own biological family. The people who look, talk, and act like me give me a false sense of comfort that the world loves. But the people in Christ, even if we don't share the same language, customs, ethnicity, culture, you name it, I have more in common with them. And that ought to loosen your bond, right? Shouldn't that, like, to to your earthly loyalties? Look, birds of a feather flock together. But that's not the gospel. That's immaturity. And you even see this in the church. You'll resort to the lowest common denominator chemistry, compatibility, things in common. But what are we called to? A unity in Christ. And it's revolutionary. And diverse backgrounds gather together in Christ and are made one. How one? How one? Did you catch that? As one as the Father is with the Son and what's the purpose verse 23 i am in them and you in me and there's there're two words here that i think that like might set you free i'm in them i am in them you and me and they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them now catch this these two words might mess you up even as even as you loved me in the same way that jesus is welcomed at the right hand of the father so also Because of Christ, you and I are welcomed into his household. Jesus is sent by the Father, now so are we. Jesus, and just as Jesus is loved by the Father, so are we. In the end, if you're here in this room, Jesus has called you separately out of the world by praying for you. So if you're in this room and you're a believer, like you've heard, like the, the Gospels messed you up, right? And now you know you can't go back, right? You can't, I couldn't go back to being like what I used to be even if I wanted to. Then Christian, I have good news for you. You are here today because he prayed for you. And he continues to pray for you. But if you're in this room and maybe you don't know? Maybe you're in this room and you're not a believer and someone just kind of drug you in here. I have good news for you too. You're here today because he prayed for you and he continues to pray for you that you might be drawn in by his gravity to this place, to this moment so that you would see an eternal, a powerful truth. And so believer, Christian, praise God, Jesus prayed for you. You're here because God answered his prayer. But even if not, here's what I want to blow your mind with if you're not a believer in this room, here's what I want to convince you. You're here because he prayed for you. And he is at the right hand of the Father. The right hand of the Father right now. Right now. At the right hand of the Father, sitting in all the glory of the Father and saying, would you take him? Would you take him? Would you draw them to himself? Would you draw them in? Unbeliever, unChristian, confused Christian, I want you to know you're here because he prayed for you. And he's praying for you still. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you have interceded for us. You have done for us what we could never do for ourselves. We also confess that this is a radical, life-changing, eternity-altering truth Apart from your mercy towards us, it isn't even something we can comprehend, much less believe. So God, unite all of these things together in this prayer into our own hearts. Give us a vision of your glory and greatness and your mass and gravity. Give us a vision of what that calls us to be, united with Christ and therefore separate from the world. And then let let that overflow into our own view of purpose and meaning and mission that we are now sent out. Now that we've been drawn in by the Father, we are now sent out like the Son. If there's some in this room where those those things seem just too difficult to believe, would you even now begin to encourage them, uh, comfort them, let them know that uh, the words that the enemy says to them, that they're meaningless and worthless and without value are lies meant to keep them in the dark? Would you even now begin to open the eyes of faith in the people in this room that we would... Confess, we can't come to you on our own merit. We can't draw to you on our own ability. We just don't have it. And replace in that a deep and profound confession of faith that though we were dead in our trespasses, unable to please you, that you have accepted us and invited us in that we might receive and believe this good news. Might we repent of, that is, might we turn away from finding hope and comfort anywhere else. And might we turn towards you in faith to experience life and joy, hope and purpose forever and ever. In Jesus' name, amen.